Christchurch, New Malden, 15th of September 2019, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series Romans and the Covenant, The Covenant in Jeopardy, Part 1. Well, you know, it can be a pretty shattering uh, experience when we suddenly recognise that something that's meant to be the solution is instead part of the problem. When it comes to Brexit, for instance, and all the terrible divisions that are raging over it, that's actually a feeling that unites both sides. So many on the Leave side now see most of our elected politicians, our civil service, our judiciary, even Parliament itself, all things meant to be solutions as instead part of the problem. And many on the Remain side see certainly our present government under Boris Johnson. Even the decision to hold that referendum back in 2016 in much the same way. Supposed solutions that are now seen as a big part of the problem. And given that perspective, it's not surprising that on both sides of the Brexit divide, there's now considerable perplexity about how this mess can ever be resolved. And in the early parts of Paul's letter to the Romans, we have a certain similarity to this. Because they're full of frankness, this early chapters, on the part of St. Paul, about how the people of Israel, those intended to be part of God's solution to the problems of the world, have instead become part of that very problem. Last week, if you were here with David Taylor, we looked at the second half of Romans chapter 1 and its message about the whole of the world being under sin and all the terrible effects of that. Terrible effects both in terms of human degradation, but also in terms of God's judgment and the way in which both of those things were completely interlinked. And most of the Jews in Paul's day they would have heartily agreed with the contents of that chapter. With the second half of chapter 1, they would probably have said a hearty, I completely agree to its contents. But what's so devastating about Romans chapter 2, and most of Romans chapter 3 that we'll look at next week, is the way in which Paul then goes on to show how Israel itself the people chosen to be part of God's solution to this tragedy of a messed up world, how they had turned out to be part of the problem as well. Israel were God's covenant people, weren't they? They were a nation that was established, as we heard in our reading from Exodus chapter 19, to be a kingdom of priests. They were established to be God's people precisely in order to display to the surrounding world what it meant like to live under the rule of God. But instead, they became part of the problem. These two chapters of Romans, chapter 2 and most of chapter 3, they show how Israel turning out to be as infected by sin as the rest of the world, that put the whole of God's covenant rescue plan into jeopardy. How was it going to be resolved? And the value of these chapters for us is that by being so clear about the problem, they provide greater clarity for us about the solution. By being so frank about the mess of not just the world, but the people that were chosen to be part of God's solution, 
they make it even clearer to us how God amazingly brought about the solution in his son Jesus Christ. The last part of Romans chapter 3 from verse 21 onwards, we'll look at this in a couple of weeks' time, it reveals how God's righteousness, God's covenant justice, his solution to a sinful world was finally revealed in Jesus Christ. But these earlier chapters, they're a crucial preliminary because they reveal to Paul's original readers and to us the extent and the complexity of the problem that Jesus came to solve. And in the process, they reveal quite a few important things to us in our contemporary situation as well, starting with the truth that God requires not just repentance, but transformation. God requires both repentance and transformation. Chapter 1 has been really frank about human sin and its devastating effect on human beings. And chapter 2 makes it clear that whilst God is kind, whilst God is tolerant and patient, these qualities of God, they're not meant to lead us to complacency, they're meant to lead us to repentance and transformation. And the reason is because God's judgment is very real. Verses 5 to 8, if you've got the Bible open at Romans chapter 2, it's page 1129. If you want to have the Bibles open, if you look at verses 5 to 8, you'll see that those verses amongst the, are amongst the clearest in the whole of the New Testament in showing that there will be a future day of judgment. A day when, as verse 6 says, God will give to each person what he has done. To those, Paul continues in verse 7, who persist in doing good, seek glory, who, who by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, when he says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive what is due to him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. It's uncomfortable reading, isn't it? Uncomfortable hearing as well. And for this reason, many Christians have acted as if what follows in Romans about us being justified or declared righteous through our faith in Jesus Christ somehow cancels out this earlier stuff about judgment. But it doesn't cancel it out. The two actually go together. And what Paul makes very clear in this passage and others is that how we've lived both matters and will have eternal consequences. And that's because how we live, what we actually do with our lives, will be the evidence that we follow Jesus and as this passage says, sought to uh, re uh, receive glory, honour and immortality. And likewise, there'll be no greater evidence that we haven't followed Jesus and that we've rejected the truth if we remain self-seeking and if we follow evil. It is quite bold statements and challenging ones. And I think it's the spur that we need to make sure that true repentance and the commitment to being transformed by God's Spirit 
is a continuing priority in our lives. We are saved by grace. We are saved by what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And justification by faith is about knowing that right now, if we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, we are already part of his family. And both of those truths are intended to bring us wonderful reassurance. But we also need to know that we will still nonetheless one day stand before the judgment seat of God and he will expect that grace that we've received to have changed us. And that's linked to a second truth within this chapter as well, which is that in his judgment, God doesn't show favoritism. As I say, when Paul spoke about sin and its effect on the world in chapter 1, he was giving a message that most Jews would have heartily agreed with. But if they carried on reading or hearing into chapter 2, there was a shock in store. Paul starts this chapter with therefore, and after the contents of chapter 1, he might have been expected to say something like, therefore, all those wicked Gentiles around us, they're going to receive God's judgment. But instead, he speaks of the way in which God's people were under precisely the same judgment. There will be trouble and distress, Paul says, for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God, he says, does not show favouritism. Now this would have been a massive shock for Paul's Jewish readers. How could this man possibly claim any similarity between them and the pagans that lived around them? And when we reflect on it, it is a pretty outrageous claim that Paul was making. The world in which these people lived was saturated with idolatry, immorality and cruelty. There were unwanted babies left abandoned by the sides of roads. Dreadful to reflect on that, particularly in the light of what we heard about earlier from Karen. There were prostitutes surrounding every pagan temple. Pagan worship was saturated with immorality of a, of a kind that is incomprehensible. There was servitude and slavery everywhere. And the truth is that most Jews were doing their best to stay completely separate from this, to try to have nothing to do with it. So how could what Paul says in this passage possibly be true? Well, it's because Paul appears to be saying in this passage, more was expected of Israel. Yes, they were God's chosen people who possessed his law, but this wasn't out of favoritism. It's because of what I said about earlier. It's because Israel, the Jewish people, were meant to display to the world around them what it meant to live under the rule of God. And what Paul is being really frank about in this passage is that that simply hadn't happened. They may not have done it in the same blatant way as the pagans living around them, but judged by the very strict standards of the law that God had given them, they too were guilty of the very same things that they associated with paganism. Stealing, committing adultery, robbing temples and dishonouring God. 
People couldn't be declared right with God, Paul says, by just possessing the law. They had to obey it. And that was something that Israel had failed to do. And worst of all, that meant that Israel had failed in the entire purpose of her calling. Verse 24 is the really key verse in this passage, where Paul makes perhaps his most devastating statement about God's people and their failure. And this is what he says, and he's quoting the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel. It's a bit of a merger of passages from both of them. God's name, he says, is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. It's a devastating statement about the failure of God's people. And whilst the story of Israel has a certain uniqueness, and to a large degree we read these passages to understand about the unfolding of God's covenant plan and the way that Jesus came to be the amazing answer to the failure of Israel. Although there is a certain uniqueness about these passages, it does also contain a hefty warning to us as God's current people, doesn't it? In two ways. First, it makes clear that God does expect more from those to whom he's revealed himself most fully. And secondly, it speaks to us because God's act of choosing us, just like his act of choosing Israel, that isn't an act of favoritism over others. It's precisely because we as the church are meant to be witnesses to those others. We're probably all familiar here with the terrible story in the Old Testament where King David had one of his soldiers called Uriah. He had him basically murdered, didn't he? So that David could first cover up the fact that he'd committed adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and then after Uriah was killed, he could marry her. We're probably familiar uh, with that story, uh, the shock and the devastation of this great hero from the Old Testament, King David, doing something so appalling. But there are a couple of crucial things about that story that aren't always picked up upon. I didn't notice them for years and years until I read that story in the light of Romans chapter 2. And then there was something, well, a couple of things that really jumped out at me. Firstly, a crucial thing about that story is the nationality of Uriah. Uriah wasn't Jewish. He was a Hittite. He was a non-Jew. He was a Gentile follower of David. He was precisely the sort of person to whom David should have been displaying what it looked like to live under the rule of God, to exemplify his justice. But King David did the very opposite, didn't he? And it's significant that when the prophet Nathan came and condemned David for what he'd done, he actually spoke very similar words to those that Paul uses in that crucial verse 24 that I quoted earlier. What Nathan says to David is this, by doing this, David, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. What Nathan said to David was that through his actions, he, who was meant to be the man after God's own heart, the one who represented to the foremost what Israel was meant to be all about, he had done the precise opposite. He had worked the precise opposite of the witness for God that Israel, and particularly its king, 
were meant to embody. Nathan says when he rebukes David that that was true for him. Paul in this passage broadens it and says it was true for the whole of God's people. And whilst we go on to read in chapter 3 in a couple of weeks' time about Jesus being the one who would finally and uniquely fulfill Israel's calling, Jesus coming as the Messiah to be what Israel was always meant to be in person. It's important, nonetheless, to reflect on how we're doing in regard to this calling. Because the calling of God's people today remains precisely the same as the calling of God's people when that people were Israel. Our calling the reason we are made God's people is to reflect to the world what it looks like, what it means to live under the rule of God. And this is a tough question, but it's one that all of us, me included, have to ask ourselves. Do the non-Christians that know us, particularly those who know us really well, perhaps because they work with us, perhaps because they're members of our family, perhaps because they're our next-door neighbours, do the non-Christians that know us, do they think more of God or less of God because of what they see in our lives? When we interact with them, do they see characteristics that make them despise God and anyone who might follow him? Or does it, maybe secretly, maybe in the quietness of their hearts, perhaps uh, we'll never fully know the answer to this question, does it make them think, well, actually, perhaps God is there, perhaps God is love, perhaps God does want me to belong to him? It's a tough question, but it's one that I believe we have to ask. Do the non-Christians that know us, do they think more or less of God because of what they see in our lives. God has revealed himself to us more fully than to others. And as with the people of Israel, that brings with it both greater accountability, we're held to a higher standard, and it also brings greater responsibility. Greater responsibility for us to witness to others what it means to live faithfully under his rule. And the third and final theme coming from this passage is that it's the inward rather than the outward that matters to God. The great mark of belonging in Judaism was circumcision, wasn't it? The ceremony that was performed on a Jewish baby boy on the eighth day of his life. It was the outward sign that you belong to God. But, Paul says in this passage, genuine circumcision is something done to the heart. And the outward sign, he says, means absolutely nothing if it's not accompanied by an obedience that comes from the heart. And again, this is deeply challenging to us, isn't it? As I say, the whole point of these chapters in the grand scheme of Romans is to build towards the point where Jesus is seen to be God's surprising answer to the problem of sin and the devastation that it's wreaked on the world. God does it by showing how Israel's failure appeared to place the whole of the covenant plan in jeopardy before God's righteousness, his covenant justice, was finally revealed in Jesus Christ. But it also, I repeat, 
stands as a warning to any of us who count ourselves amongst God's people to recognise that outward signs, outward signs like church attendance, our baptism, our confirmation, our membership of a home group, our ordination. I think I'm the only one who's ordained here. No, Ian is as well. There's two of us. Any of those things, they amount to absolutely nothing if that circumcision of the heart by God's Holy Spirit has not occurred. Paul is clear in this passage that some will have the outward signs but not the inward reality. And it's also clear that there are some who will have the inward reality without the outward signs. And while Paul goes on wonderfully to show how our ongoing failure and our ongoing sin is covered by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, we nonetheless need to note that what God wants from us is not outward conformity, but soft, repentant hearts. Paul will go into God's work of bringing this about later in Romans, particularly in chapter 8. That's where we hear all about the Holy Spirit. But for now, let's make sure that we keep recognising this as the key priority. God wants not outward conformity. He wants soft, repentant hearts. The very people who were meant to be the solution being revealed to be part of the problem. We'll continue this theme next week as we look at the first half of Romans chapter 3. We'll see later on in Romans how God amazingly used, he didn't bypass it, amazingly we see in Romans how God used this very failure of Israel as part of the solution that he brought in Jesus Christ. Israel had a crucial role which she unwittingly fulfilled through her very failure. In many ways the story, as I say, is a unique one about God's unfolding salvation plan. But let's use it to think more seriously than perhaps we often do about the nature of God's judgment. Let's use it to think more seriously than perhaps we often do about the greater amount expected of God's people, both in terms of our holiness and our witness to others. And let's use it to think perhaps more seriously than we often do about the emphasis not being on the outward, but on the hearts that we offer to God. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you call us to be part of your people, but would you help us to never be complacent in any way about that? Would you help us to recognise the higher standards that you call those people too, that you reveal yourself to most fully. And we pray, Lord God, that we would not only live lives of holiness for you, but because of the calling that you give us to witness to others, to be a kingdom of priests, displaying to the world what it looks like and what it means to live under your rule. We're sorry for the times when we have failed badly in this regard. And Lord God, we recommit ourselves to you right now in our families, in our workplace, in our street. When we're with other people, Lord God, make us a witness to you. Make us live our lives in such a way that rather than thinking less of you, that people come to recognise your reality and your supreme love 
We ask, Lord God, that you'd work through us. And we ask this in Jesus' name.